Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Abdurrahman Malik. I'm canvassing the world for the most interesting people to hear about their journeys, their work, and what it means to be alive in the world today. And perhaps nobody has captured that experience of being alive better than the 13th century Persian poet and Sufi mystic Jalaluddin Rumi in his poem, The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. So welcome to This Being Human, a podcast inspired by Rumi's words and motivated by all those who carry that message forward in the world today. Today, artist Kavork Murad. This being human means to me, we are layers of experiences. Do not underestimate any human being when you meet on the street, regardless if they are street sweepers, regardless if they're doctors or engineers or a refugee that you meet. Every single person is a person. To call Kavork a visual artist would fail to capture the unique nature of what he does. Yes, he puts lines on a page, creating striking drawings and animations. But he's also a dynamic performer who collaborates with musicians to create works of art in front of live audiences, his movements blending seamlessly with the sound of the music. The results are stunning and the process is captivating to watch. Born in Syria of Armenian descent, Kavork's work has been commissioned all over the world. His collaborators include some of the most celebrated names in classical music, such as cellist Yo-Yo Ma, American violist Kim Kashkashian, and renowned orchestras like the Los Angeles Master Chorale. I spoke with Kavork about how he blends his eyes, ears, and the artistic hands to the sounds of the world around him, whether it's in front of a live audience or in his studio in New York. Kavork Murad, I'm so happy to have you join us on This Being Human. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Abdurrahman. This is fantastic. Kavork, I want to begin by asking you to take us to one of your most memorable performances. And I would like you to take us to that moment just before the performance is about to begin. How are you feeling? What's going through your mind? What energy is flowing through you as you head into it? So I have two experiences. The first one is the performance of Home Within. Home Within is a collaboration with an amazing clarinetist composer and a friend, Kidan Azmi. (laughs) 
The piece begins with the clarinetist alone in the spotlight. We wanted to kind of document what was happening in Syria and at the same time to support the refugees in any ways we can, you know, financially with contribution at our work and also emotionally and ideas-wise to, to, to show the world that what's, what's happening in that part of the world. Soon, haunting blank faces appear on the screen behind Kanan, their hands raised. Later, we see Kavork on stage, drawing, his work projected on the screen. We alternate between the live drawings and animation. Ancient cities, warriors on horseback, tortured souls. There's a sense of turmoil to all of it. So when we were in Lebanon, we got invited to perform in Beirut. And, and we all know uh, Lebanon has the largest Syrian refugees in the world. It's, 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 it's crazy. It's probably like the, the quarter population of the Lebanon is, is Syrian. I don't know why I never thought that the audience could be fully Syrian there. We created this work inspired and wanted to share the story of our friends and family from Syria. And they were there. They wanted the, the heartwarming and a moment where they could kind of feel the sigh. Ah, this is it. So that performance, the end of that performance, when we finished the last frame where Kinan is playing his clarinet. In this moment, Kinan is standing sideways, his dark profile against the white screen. Drawings appear to be rising out of his clarinet and spreading across the stage. Houses first, then a growing city. And from the clarinet, you see the cities getting rebuilt, which is the future that we're hoping that the country get rebuilt. We left and we went to the green room. I was in tears. You know, sometimes we don't know why we're that moved. And then I saw Kinan and he was also in tears. We hugged each other without telling why. And it was magical moment where we feel like the art has that room and need to be expressed because people are dire to get that. That was one experience. The second one, the commission that I got from Master Corel in Los Angeles, they wanted me to create this masterwork by Handel, visuals, like that piece is written, I think 250 years ago, and it's, the, it's about the Exodus. It's the first uh, uh, refugee crisis 3,000 years ago where Israelite forced to leave Egypt. And I'm not a religious person, but I'm spiritual. So it means when this came to me, I said, this commission is not coincident. Not a coincident because, first of all, the crisis in Syria, the refugee crisis are big. And my ancestors were forced to leave their homes from historic Armenia, which is Turkey today, to Syria. That's how I ended up growing up in Syria. 
So can I put those three things together? 3,000-year-old story, 100 and some year old story of my ancestors and today's story together in one piece. And when I created that work and I was with 80 singers and I was planted between them. So behind me, the chorus, in front of me are the musicians. So the chorus is like maybe 50 centimeters behind me. When they're singing, their breath is hitting my back and I'm getting goosebumps without even starting. Wow. So this is masterpiece, Handel's Israel and Egypt, which kind of uh, depict this, this Exodus story. And when I asked the conductor, I said, is it possible the singers could kind of interact and move, be part of? He's like, absolutely, we'll do whatever you ask for because we need to support the piece. We need to make the piece complete. And that moment was so special and it was so elaborate. I've never done a large work like this where the live orchestra is kind of part of the work. I'm drawing live. I should not kind of carry away from the piece. I need to be in the piece. And meanwhile, I have the technology, I have the foot controller. And at the end, when I'm done, there's like 2,500 people that are watching there. I leave. So it's like I finished the, the work. I'm gone to, to the way to the green screen, uh, green room, sorry. I see the conductor had this big glass of beer. He's like, you deserve this. <laughs> it's like, Magic. And, and it's just beautiful to see all this, this, this moment where it just shapes you as a kind of a, a creative person about the next journey. I remember the first time that I saw your work, I was shown it by a curator. It says, you, you should have watched this video evidence and testimony to the work of this artist named Kavork Morad. It was intense and it was mesmerizing and I couldn't help but want to be fully present in that moment to witness what you were doing. And I look forward to, inshallah, the time that, that I can have the privilege of seeing you in the flow that you've just talked about. Inshallah. I also thought to myself at that moment, how vulnerable must this artist feel? When you are evolving your work in real time in front of an audience, how do you engage with that risk and that vulnerability? I think every time you do anything live has risk. And the risk factor is actually could be positive because you have the adrenaline rush and you are trying to tell a story. So it's kind of almost like you're weaving a carpet with two different mediums, sound and image. So once you create that thread, you're moving forward, it has to kind of, at the end, tell or, or say why this performance is happening. It is vulnerable. I have a software in the computer that kind of stores the pre-made stuff in. So if I'm creating a performance, 50% uh, is created previously because if I'm, let's say, I'm creating a figure, sometimes if I want this figure to move, that movement, it should be done previously. So the interesting thing about my live performances what I'm creating live is very fast. Whatever it's moving, it takes months to create. So this one dancer, it takes like two months for me to, because everything is hand-drawn, like a thousands of drawings, I put them together, but I release them in 20 seconds. But sometimes I draw in 20 seconds and then 20 seconds. One took two and a half months, one took 20 seconds. So combine them together. So pre-made is stored in the computer. I have a MIDI controller on my foot. It changes the channel between live camera to the computer. So all this is, if anything goes wrong in technology, you're vulnerable, of course. So 
you're like continuously your heart is beating, continuously you're like on the edge, but that kind of uh, it transforms the work and the work becomes more exciting because as you said, you witnessed it video, but imagine if you witnessed it live and sometimes the paint clogs, sometimes the paint explodes on the paper. It's just like everything could happen. But so you're kind of in battle to create until the last second, something interesting. And that is the beauty and the fun of live performance. And I don't regret it. I love every second of it. What it feels that you're doing is you're telling a story. And I wonder what is it about the power of a story through visual art that really sparks you? It's a great, great question. When my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, arrived to Syria, he's orphan with his brother. Two orphan brothers arrived. They were forced to leave their homes. They arrived to Syria and they settled in the border with Turkey, Kamishli, northeast part of it's heavily populated by a Kurdish minority there. Armenian, he wanted to learn the Kurdish language. He learned Kurdish and he was musical. He started playing tambur. He played this instrument and he created beautiful songs in Kurdish and he shared it with the Kurdish community. And he went to the Kurdish wedding and he played there and he became, his nickname became Tamburban. Tamburban, it means like the master of tambur. Every time I remember growing up when I heard him playing, he gave me such a beautiful inspiration. And I think he's the one who kind of planted the seed of storytelling because he told his own story through other cultures' language and rhythm. He wanted to kind of capture the land story and to give it to the next generations without even thinking about his fame. He refused to record himself. He refused to share... His, his work as fame. He just wanted to capture that moment. And yes, I believe that the most powerful way to tell art is to tell a story. Because if we tell the story of our ancestors in any way you can, the future generations, they kind of understand where they come from. If we don't know our past, we will not know our future, where we're going. My grandfather gave me the sense of the rhythm and the music. If I had parents, they were uh, kind of supportive of art and culture. I'm sure I would have gone to music direction, but to draw is much easier. You just take a piece of paper and just occupy yourself. But whenever I heard music, it lines used to, used to kind of change and curve based on the music. And I think the very first time when I acknowledged that the drawing could be my way of uh, storytelling, when I was in Armenia, I just graduated the, the art school there and I was invited to take part in the first Biennale. And I collaborated with a good friend. He's a trombonist. He came from America to learn about the culture, uh, Armenian uh, uh, music and all that. Together, we decided to influence, to support each other. So without me preparing anything, without him preparing anything, we created this kind of bond between the two mediums. And I felt it's the beginning of something interesting. So that was uh, 1997. Kavork was born in Aleppo, Syria. He grew up in a working class neighborhood called Norgu, meaning new village. Many Armenians settled there in 1915 after fleeing the genocide in Turkey and the surrounding regions. The city's rich mix of cultures and faiths would come to have a huge impact on Kavork's worldview and his artistic practice. 
We used to walk in this old neighborhood, and there you see one side is the mosque, the other side you see the Roman, Christian, and Assyrian, and the Armenian. They're all built on top of each other. It's like one thing, because it's all like you're walking in this narrow street. That's kind of carved in my memory, all this beautiful layers of history, which is kind of part of our our kind of weekend uh, journey. And those all seeped into my work. And on the top of it, of course, the music and the sound and the old architecture, I like ironworks of the windows. And we never even kind of felt a difference between any faith, any background. They're all kind of part of each other's life without even thinking, oh, this person is from that neighborhood, this person's from that neighborhood. We never felt difference between their citizens. And I thought that's going to stay there forever. What does it mean to be an Armenian? And what are kind of the lessons, the the experiences, the stories of your own Armenian heritage, which drive this desire for collaboration and connection and beauty? Being an Armenian, and on one hand is blessing, on the other hand is curse, because as probably you heard or you read, they moved and they spread all over the world. I don't know why, but... I feel like they continuously want to feel somewhere safe. So to talk about my ancestors, I think that would be a great, great way to emphasize what did that mean to be Armenian. So when they arrived to Syria, we were the first refugees there. We arrived there as a refugee and the Syrian people, they opened their arms. We got what we want. We, we kept our language, we kept, we kept our faith. To come barehanded to a place and to build everything from scratch and to have this wealth of a culture in Syria, it's a very unique thing that that is another reason where I kind of always go back and draw from my memories from there to put that in my works because it's important for the world to know that the refugee crisis is not about now. It's been the way my ancestors arrived and they started creating beautiful things, you know, from the carpet to, to, to jewelry to, you know, uh, pots and maybe, you know, Zildjian, the Zildjian, the symbols. It's so much wealth to contribute to society. And that doesn't happen alone. It happens collaboratively. So if we didn't have the opportunity to flourish in Syria and to grow, I don't think we would have been where we are now. What's important for me we kept our culture, we kept our language, our faith and everything else. Plus, we were so fortunate to learn about the local traditions, the local language, to learn Arabic. We even learned remote languages like I learned Turkish, I learned Kurdish. So this is amount of wealth that we, as a part of the curse, which we happen to be, you know, refugees and, and forced to live in, in different land, we took that all as a wealth and shaped us who we are. Kavork moved to Armenia later in life to get his MFA at the Yerevan Institute of Fine Arts. But it didn't exactly feel like a homecoming. There's something important for me to explain. Armenia has two different sides, West and East. Western Armenians are the diaspora Armenians. The Armenians are like spread all over the world after the genocide. The Eastern one, kind of, they were there. They became at the beginning part of the Soviet. And there's a 
two different uh, kind of uh, dialects between them. So for us, we never been, I never grew up in Armenia, so I grew up in Syria. So to go to Armenia, even though it's Armenian, you don't kind of become part of the fabric right away. The language is, is a bit different. It takes you like a couple of months to understand fully. But what was hard, and it's still hard, this idea of, I grew up in Syria, I'm not 100% Syrian, because I happen to be, I'm Armenian. I go to Armenia, I'm not 100% Armenian because I'm from diaspora. So this idea of not being from one place, again, it's, it's like a curse, but it could be also a blessing where you don't know if you need to be part of one place to be able to speak about different cultures and different people. I look at it, I'm, I'm an optimistic person. I look at it from the bright side and I take that, give it to me, I'll create more out of it. Will you help the Aga Khan Museum make this being human even better? Take five minutes to fill out a short survey and tell us what you think. By providing your feedback, you'll help us measure our impact and reach more people with extraordinary stories from some of the most interesting artists, thinkers, and leaders on the kaleidoscope of Muslim experience. To participate, go to agakhanmuseum.org slash TBH survey. And thank you for listening to This Being Human. When Kavork was searching for his artistic voice, he saw art as a Western thing. He had learned about great American artists and he aspired to be like them. So at first he didn't take stock of the rich art and culture that he had been immersed in since childhood. Growing up in Aleppo, it was very unique experience in a way that subconsciously many things kind of carve into your memory. You're without your thinking, you're gaining all this visual knowledge and sonic knowledge. You're just like getting it all. But in the meantime, I was always looking outside, far away to the West. For me, art is in the West. For me, art is outside, rejecting many of the local uh, information and visual information. And whatever I witnessed there, it, I wasn't thinking that it's going to be my future. But subconsciously, it was all, you know, I was just taking it and taking it. So when I arrived to America, I wanted to contribute to the American culture in a way through my art. But I thought if I'm going to be the next William de Kooning or the Jackson Pollock is the one. But with a little bit of time, you realize that they did it. It's done. The most important thing is to concentrate and look into your roots and to see if you could bring from your culture to the local people. So this local people, they could understand what was there, what's out there. So slowly, slowly, I realized what I gained from my knowledge and memories from Aleppo, it seeped in, it just came to my work and I welcomed that because I realized the unique experience is much more powerful than this bigger picture like American Expressionist or like a painting, like painterly paint. No, the truly art enthusiasts, they want the unique and the individual voice. Once you have that individual voice, it becomes clearer that you could say things in a minimal way and the effect is maximum. 
2011, following the Arab Spring, Syria was the site of a brutal civil war. A four-year-long battle took place in Kavork's hometown of Aleppo. Civilians were targeted, as well as hospitals and schools. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed and millions displaced, creating one of the largest refugee crises in recent history. And how have you come to terms with the tragedy in Syria? The unrest there, the, the, the civil conflict there. How has that shaped you as an, as an artist? Uh, the conflict in Syria had a huge impact on my works in a way that I used to paint lots of colorful paintings at studio. The performance has always been black and white because when I create work, it's not about finished work. It's just about being practical that the line should be either white on black paper or black on white paper. But in that the studio, I was always experimenting with colors and colors and canvas. But once that tragedy hit Syria, I wanted to kind of document, almost like I'm writing my own diary to put my feelings in this diary. So my work became black and white. The colors kind of diminished from the works in a way that I'm not creating work to kind of uh, decorate other people's wall. I want to create a work where in the work has voice of people, voice of suffering, voice of the local people who once upon a time, they welcomed us there. They made us to feel in our home, to feel, feel welcome. And that was very important for me. It's important for me to show the world that I want to return the kindness of the Syrian people to, who, who gave us when we arrived there 100 some years ago. Uh, I'm not shy about it. I'm, I'm, I talk about it loudly. I'm not sure many nationalist Armenians love that, but I don't think I can ignore that. So the tragedy affected my work and it became black and white. And I continuously, until now, I do lots of black and white work. And the work uh, behind me is uh, one, of, one of those works. This is done 2016. Kavork gestures to a drawing on the wall behind him. It's a large, chaotic scene of a city. In the background are buildings, some standing, some falling, some that almost seem to be disappearing. In the foreground, textiles, torn and strewn across the page, rising and falling like waves into a massive, messy pile. If you look closely, you can see hands coming out from beneath. Dead or alive, it's not clear. I had the phone conversation with a friend of mine. He's Armenian. He decided to stay behind to be kind of part of... Uh, survivors and part of the fabric of Aleppo. And when I was speaking with him, he used to go to his work, his pharmacist. Some streets, he need to hide behind the fabric, behind this, I don't know if you heard these stories where people collectively put together this huge fabric and to protect themselves from snipers. They used to go to their work behind the fabric. And I started thinking, if I meet this person, if I meet this friend in the future, how I'm going to look into his eyes, that I'm very comfortably in my studio creating, and he's with his family, with his two kids, he has to go work in this risky daily threat that he could die in any minute. So I decided to create this piece and I called it Immortal City. That city who stood there for thousands of years because of people like him. They protected the city, they protected the culture. People, they decided to tie themselves to the ancient ruins to say that if we don't protect the city, no one is going to protect. And 
comes to my mind is saying, people create place, not the place create people. And as someone from Syria, who is an artist and a cultural producer, what has the experience of witnessing this tragedy been like for you? Just before the 9-11 crisis or the 9-11, I saw that the Arabic culture was living the Renaissance. Imagine any kind of newspaper stand you could see in Arabic newspaper. That was fascinating. I would have seen Al-Hayat. I would have seen Al-Qahira. I would have seen like, it was on the subways, people were reading Arabic newspapers. I could have easily opened the Arabic book and read on the subway. After that, all that disappeared. You don't see that. I, until today, I don't see that. It's like, it's almost 20 years. We have not seen that it's returning. And it's very hard to see any Arabic cultural things successfully can done now because it's, it's very hard to organize anything related to Arabic culture and language, unfortunate. But personally, I have never stopped. I always wanted to talk about my background, my culture, my the two important cultures in me, that the, the Syrian and Armenian. And I don't feel like I was ever forced to change the way I express my own work. So I was very fortunate to never be, you know, stop doing what I'm doing. And of course, we need to do lots of work to educate the Western audience for how to perceive the cultural work and piece of artwork and piece of music. It's important, but it's important to not stop. It's important not to change your work based on other people's judgment because artwork shouldn't be about fashion. Artwork should be about the truth and history. Given that you've had so many homes, so many places that you've gone to and found collaboration and community, what does home mean to you now? First of all, home means a place where you feel safe because if you're safe, you're creative. Second, it's very important when you contribute. So if I'm contributing, if I'm creating things and just giving to kind of my contemporaries or my, the place I live, it means it's safe for me to create, it's safe for me to share. I don't think I can say only one place is home for me. Whenever I'm safe, whenever I feel like I could contribute to that place, it's the best home. Kavork Murad, what does this being human mean to you? This being human means to me, we are layers of experiences. Do not underestimate any human being when you meet on the street, regardless if they are street sweepers, regardless if they're doctors or engineers or a refugee that you meet. Every single person is a person. You give them, you receive more than what you give them. Thank you so much, Kavork, for joining me on This Being Human. My pleasure, Abdurrahman. Hopefully we'll meet in person on the other side.
This Being Human is an Antica production. Our senior producer is Pasant Matar. This episode was produced by Ebian Abdegir and written by Kevin Sexton. Mixing and sound design by Phil Wilson. Original music by Boombox Sound. The executive producers are Kathleen Goldhar and Lisa Gabriel. And Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. This Being Human is generously supported by the Aga Khan Museum one of the world's leading institutions that explores the artistic, intellectual, and scientific heritage of Islamic civilizations around the world. For more information about the museum, go to www.agakhanmuseum.org. <laughs>